So good evening, LCM. Good evening. It is indeed a new year, it is a new schedule, and it is a new chapter. Woo! My God, is it going to be a good evening? Yeah! It's been two weeks since we were last together. And I just have to say, an awful lot's happened since then. In our last session together, we saw the transition from the governance of Babylon by the Chaldeans to the rulership under the Medo-Persian Empire. You had homework, and I think it's best if I don't ask you if you did it, because your answer might discourage me. <laughs> Instead, I just want to review with you a little bit to highlight a topic that you're likely to spend the next several decades. Somebody say decades. Decades. Seeking the Lord about for insight. Your homework was to read Isaiah 13 and 14 to read Jeremiah 50 and 51, and then to read Revelation 17 and 18 and do it in one sitting. See why I'm not asking you if you did it? <laughs> My hope in having you do this was for you to discover the complexity of developing a sound biblical hermeneutic concerning the fall of Babylon. The general approach to this kind of thing is usually to find your favorite teacher and adopt the view that he develops and articulates. That kind of approach would have robbed you of the awesome privilege of personally mining God's words for the treasure of revelation that is given to you. Yeah. So let's dive into a few of the things that you would have encountered in these chapters. This will position us well for our chapter this evening, which is occurring under the dominion of Darius the Mede. To start with, the transition between the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire occurred in Daniel 5, what we studied two weeks ago. The Medo-Persian Empire diverted the Euphrates River, which allowed them to bypass the defensive moat system protecting Babylon, and the city fell without a significant fight. Now let's highlight a few consistent factors in the prophecies detailing the fall or doom Ooh. of Babylon. Okay. You guys ready to get into Isaiah 13 and 14 together? Oh, yeah. yes. So in Isaiah 13, verses 6 and 9, these events, the events of these chapters, are occurring on the day of the Lord. In that same chapter in verses 10 and 11, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the Lord will punish the world for its evil. What about the next two verses? There will be the near annihilation of man. Wow. During this time, the near annihilation of man will occur, and the earth will shake from its place. Those are some pretty crazy stipulations there. Verse 19, Chaldean pride will be overthrown. This word is important, Chaldean, because it's twofold. It's both the geographical identity of Babylon and it is the ethnic identity of Babylon. That becomes very important as we move forward. Also in verse 19, it says that Babylon will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. Verse 20, Babylon will never be inhabited again. That area of the world, never inhabited again. And it actually says there will be no arrows in it. Yeah. 
Interesting. That's interesting for our future studies. Also in chapter 14, verse 1, the Lord will settle Israel in their own land. So for the sake of gaining an appreciation for the context, let's read Isaiah 13, starting in verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. Nor shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. Now, it is problematic to try to associate the transition of Babylon from the Chaldeans to the Medo-Persians with these verses alone. It's obvious that they imply more than what actually happened in history up to this point. It is also intriguing that Isaiah mentions Arabs. Say Arabs. Arabs. In connection with Babylon, since Arabia is hundreds of miles to the south. But let's move on to Jeremiah for now. So this is a summary of Jeremiah. <laughs> Jeremiah 50 through 51. As you can see on the screen in the first verse, the land of the Chaldeans is mentioned, i.e. a geographical and ethnic identifier, just like what we saw in Isaiah earlier, as to the specific land in reference. Verse 3 explicitly states, no one will live in it. Verses 4 through 5, both Israel being northern tribes and Judah together will bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. These events are supposed to coincide with the fall of Babylon. Yeah. Verse 8, Israel is fleeing out of Babylon, out of the land of the Babylonians. Verse 13, Babylon will be completely desolate. 19 and 20, Israel will be back in the land. And their guilt will not be able to be found. You catching the events that are supposed to surround the fall of Babylon? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the Lord opens up his arsenal in the land of the Babylonians. Ooh. Man, that's, uh, that's an interesting phrase. <laughs> <It's> provocative. <laughs> Opened up a case. Verse 26 says, no remnant, not at all, no remnant of the Babylonians left. Verse 40, Babylon and its populace will be left like Sodom and Gomorrah. Then 51.7, Babylon likened to a gold cup in the Lord's hand who made the whole earth drunk and now all the nations have gone mad. You guys are beginning to see a picture? Yes. So again, we're going to read Jeremiah 40, or 50 verse 40 to get a picture of what's being prophesied in the larger text. As I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, along with their neighboring towns, declares the Lord. So no one will live there. No people will dwell in it. Suffice it to say it's problematic to suggest that this event occurred in 539 B.C. during the transition from Belshazzar to Darius the Mede. It's true that many of you have probably met Sodomites. (laughs) But none of you have ever met a man from Sodom. Our point is that when this prophecy is fulfilled, nobody will ever meet a Babylonian again. And history records a continuous record of Babylon being inhabited from 539 B.C. right up till the present day. That's an issue. 
As you wrestle with the importance of this factor in understanding both biblical interpretation and eschatology, you will come to some version of these three simplified points, and it's why we are working through this so that you can engage with it. So when we compare Isaiah, when we compare Jeremiah with what actually happened in the transition from Babylon to Medo-Persia, we have to reconcile some things, and we only have three simplified options to choose. Option A, Babylon has already fallen, meaning that everything that is in Isaiah and Jeremiah already happened in the past. And those specifics of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the book of Revelation must be allegorized to be a past event. They have to be allegorized to fit that it happened a long time ago, saying these passages have already occurred in history. That's option one. That's option one. Let's look at option two. Babylon has not fallen and must yet rise in order to fall in fulfillment of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Revelation. This would mean that there will be a future and literal Babylon. Exactly where Babylon is, it will rise again in the future to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Revelation. Now option three, Babylon has not fallen and is to be taken as a spiritual entity constituting mystery Babylon. Like maybe Rome is constituting mystery Babylon. Maybe Saudi Arabia is that spiritual entity. This would mean that the future mystery Babylon might not literally be Babylon. It might be Rome. It might be Saudi Arabia, etc., etc. Those are potential possibilities. You see these three options. Now, the first one is the least likely, as being biblical scholars in this room, we know why. But we are leaning towards some, and Nick is going to explain to you what other teachers have found in their studies. Before Nick does that, I, I want you to understand that the same issues occur in the book of Revelation. The same issue occurs anytime you're looking at a prophecy. And people break into their various camps, and you do yourself an incredible misservice, disservice, to simply examine the camps and pick the one that you like the best. It would be better to examine the scripture. It might even be possible to hold a hybrid view between a few camps. Mm -hmm. But the point here being, when you see literal and ethnic descriptors of Babylon, you're a fool to ignore that and believe that it's simply some mystical thing. But when you see New Testament writers seem to imply that a city other than Babylon might be Babylon, you're a fool not to consider that. These are the kind of issues that a mature body wrestles with, and it is highly immature to simply find a teacher and adopt his point of view. This word of God was given to you. Amen. So as we talk through the fall of Babylon tonight, Needless to say, we're not the first biblical teachers to encounter these issues. We have a chart taken from one teacher's notes on the subject. And look at this. The six chapters that were assigned for your homework two weeks ago are in this chart. On the left side, we have various events. And this chart is going to dictate to us where they occur in the scripture. I'm going to walk you guys through this. So the first event, many nations attacking. You know, you can find this in Isaiah 13, verses 4 and 5. 
Isaiah 14, 2 and 26. Four times in Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah 51, it occurs in verse 7. And in Revelation 17 even, in verse 16, you have the same occurrence. Look at the second one. Israel in the land, forgiven. Isaiah 14, verse 1, and Jeremiah 54 and 20. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, you find that in Isaiah 13, verse 19, and Jeremiah 50, verse 40. Don't you love seeing these co-witnesses on this chart? Yes. Never to be inhabited, and look at this interesting phrase. The bricks will never be reused. Never build with them again. That occurs in Isaiah 13, verse 20, Isaiah 14, verse 23, and then three times each in Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. Next is during the day of the Lord, correlated events. That occurs four times in Isaiah 13. It also occurs in Jeremiah 15, verse 25. And then those arrows for Revelation 17 and 18 let us know that this phrase occurs many times in these two chapters of Revelation. Literally, there's going to be a literal Babylon, as dictated by the word Chaldean. That's how we know that. Babylon can be a city, but Chaldean is an ethnic group, and you learn that. Right, it's geographical and it's ethnic. That occurs in Isaiah 13, 19, Isaiah 14, 22, also in Jeremiah 50, verse 50, and then three occurrences in Jeremiah 51. The next one, the king's fornication. Drunk with wine. This occurs Jeremiah 51, verse 7, Revelation 17, 2, and Revelation 18, verses 3 and 9. And lastly, we have the scarlet, purple, golden cup in Jeremiah 51, verse 7, Revelation 17, verses 3 and 4, and lastly, Revelation 18, verses 6 and 16. Come on. So, fascinating chart put together by a notable scholar. One of our goals this evening is to avoid telling you what you should believe and instead focus on how you can personally evaluate all these important top topics and take ownership of it. It's not that we lack a unified position. In fact, we are strongly persuaded in the biblical efficacy of our position and we have been hinting at it since we taught the book of Jeremiah. Now, we don't lack unity in what we believe. But rather, uh, our point of view is of no real value until you have undertaken the responsibility in developing a meaningful position. <laughs> so you have to put in the legwork. So to move on to another slide, our friends at the British Museum yeah. have again given us historical and archaeological clues that aid in developing a sound biblical hermeneutic for the demise of Babylon and the establishment of Jerusalem as the throne of God on earth. Those brothers can't cook for anything, but they sure can collect relics. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the Cyrus Cylinder, and you might believe that this is a large piece of stone. It's actually only about this big. Uh, it's, it's rather small, and so it's impressive that they have these inscriptions on it. Listen to one of the inscriptions on the Cyrus Cylinder. Then Marduk ordered Cyrus to march on Babylon which he entered without a fight. Whoa. Wow. Nabonidus was delivered into the hands, of, and the people of Babylon joyfully accepted the kingship of Cyrus. Joyful. Wow. Now, just to reemphasize a few things that Peggy said. Number one, we like to refer to these as Justin Treister's friends at the British Museum. <laughs> <laughs> That's good 
good to his soul to appreciate things. They want to be my friends. <laughs> but on the actual context of the slide, notice that Marduk, you remember the ear-pulling god that had all these weird rituals? That's the national god of Babylon. And towards the end of the Babylonian monarchy, we had Belshazzar who was left, and Nabonidus who went out on an escapade after the moon god Sin, abandoning his national god. So what is contained in this inscription is the idea that Cyrus came in not only without a fight, but that they believed their national god brought him in as a savior to redeem their national religious heritage and welcomed him with joy, not combat. Just food for thought. But whatever position you take about the prophesied doom of Babylon, which is in purview between Daniel 5 and Daniel 6, welcomed him with joy, not Sodom and Gomorrah. Tonight, we are in the Medo-Persian Empire. Our section this evening relates to Daniel 2 and the statue. And the metals are of value this evening. But they are also decreasing in value as we go. So we've gone from the head of gold, that is Nebuchadnezzar, to the chest and arms of silver this evening. Now, much controversy surrounds the monarch in tonight's tonight. So we want to familiarize you with the reign of the Persian kings who were the predominant force in the Medo-Persian Empire. When you look at this next slide, it's kind of small, and you can grab pictures of it if you want. They'll be in the notes. The slide starts with the Persian king Cyrus, called the Great, and moves to his son Cambyses, and then Darius Histopheses, that's a girl, that's a mouthful. Xerxes, who King James calls Azaharis. Artaxerxes Longimanus. Xerxes II. Darius II. Artaxerxes II. Artaxerxes III. Arises. And Darius III. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. As you can see on the slide, though, out of 11 Persian kings, there are only three that are clearly named in the Holy Writ. This leads to significant debates even among competent scholars regarding which king was empowered during any given event in the biblical period. This fact is compounded by the possibility that a particular ruler also may just not yet have been discovered by profane historians and archaeologists. The most competent biblical scholars acknowledge that Darius the Mede is not readily identifiable as clearly congruent with any known secular history. That's an important fact. So the issue is when you're looking on that list, who do you not see? Darius the Mede. So we have a little bit of work identifying who this Darius the Mede is. On this slide, this is the IVP Bible background commentary commenting on Daniel 6.1. Darius the Mede, there is no known historical character named Darius prior to Darius the Great, who is too late to fit here. He is too late on in history to fit in into Daniel 6 timeline. You see, this is typical of the biblical commentators and usually prompts them to produce theories that attempt an association with a known figure. They don't know who Darius the Mede is, so they, they, they try to say that he's one of the guys that they know about. But here's another sample of what is out there. Scholars have struggled to conclusively identify Darius. 
son of Ahasuerus, with any known Persian ruler recorded in secular texts. Yeah. No Babylonian or Persian source records any figure clearly fitting the description given in the book of Daniel. Oh, seems like a problem, right? Yeah. Volumes of books and scholarly theses exist justifying various hypotheses that attempt to reconcile known secular history with Darius the Mede. All of them can be compelling, but are ultimately tainted by contradictory evidence or unlikely scenarios. They just don't add up. Rather than spend our time evaluating the hypotheses of men in what is ultimately a fool's errand, we have decided to focus on what is discernible from the actual biblical text. It's the reason why we're all here. Look, I'm feeling generous tonight, so I just want to give you something that's not in our notes. If you got caught up in this and you began studying, you probably found quite a few men that say, hey, this Darius the Mede is clearly Ugbaru, the general who was working for Cyrus that took over the city. Did anybody find that? Yeah. Well, the problem with that is history records that he died 25 days later, which would mean that quite a few events in Daniel would have had to have occurred in 25 days, including Daniel rising to the top of the kingdom, being moved to be one of three governors over everybody else. And it does not work, no matter how confidently the scholars <laughs> associate it. So Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe actually summarized our position quite well on this next slide. Like the historical record of Belshazzar, which modern scholars questioned until archaeological evidence vindicated Daniel's accuracy, Daniel has again recorded the existence of a man that other ancient historical documents omit. <laughs> Some modern scholars claim that the author of Daniel mistakenly thought that the Medes conquered Babylon instead of the Persians. They claim that this author then confused Darius I, the king of Persia, with the conqueror of Babylon, and identified this figure as Darius the Mede. However, there is no reason to assume that the book of Daniel is an error. Amen. 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 Darius the Mede is a different person from Darius I of Persia. Darius the Mede was a subordinate to Cyrus the Great. So the tendency to deny the historical accuracy of Daniel simply because there is no, there is currently no corroborating historical information stems from the anti-supernatural bias of modern scholarship. Daniel's historical record has proven to be a reliable source of information. And we are just simply waiting for secular historians to catch up to that fact. Let's take a look at what the Bible says and avoid the temptation to get wrapped up in men's theories. Here is the specific wording in Daniel regarding Darius the Mede. We have a slide, but before we go through that, you need to know something. The NIV's dynamic translation is actually misleading in Daniel 5 verse 31 because it uses the words took over, as in by force. But Fortunately for you tonight, we have five other translations, and we're able to triangulate what the text might actually say. So, look at the first one. It's the ESV. It says, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, 
Before you think that it's just the ESV, we also have the NASB, Young's Literal, the LEB, and the RSV, just to name a few that also use the exact same English word, Darius the Mede received, not took over, but received the kingdom. So perhaps in some sense, Darius the Mede received the kingdom from God, but it seems more natural to read this as he received the kingdom from another monarch. This is surely not Belshazzar since he did not give it. It was taken from Belshazzar. You know it wasn't Belshazzar because in Daniel 5 he died on the night that Babylon was overrun. He he was assassinated. So I I doubt his last dying act was a gift to Darius the Mede. So that was Daniel 5.31. Let's look at the next occurrence in Daniel 6.28. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Mm -hmm. So Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian reigned at the same time. Since history records Cyrus as the Persian king who conquered Babylon, it seems natural to assume that Cyrus gave the kingdom of Babylon to Darius the Mede, who was said to receive it from Cyrus. This also makes perfect sense because history records the Persians promoting Medes to positions of power to solidify their joint rule and alliance. Now that being said, let's look at the next occurrence. This one comes from Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. Guys, this verse is explicitly clear. Darius the Mede was made ruler of Babylon. The best way to view Darius the Mede is as a subordinate to Cyrus the Persian. You guys following us? It's true that Darius could be an honorific title rather than a proper name much in the same way that Caesar in the Roman Empire, meaning that it was truly the proper name of a man named Caesar, but became the honorific title over time, the Caesars. In fact, there are four or five Persian kings, which you heard earlier, referred to as Darius. But it's also an unnecessary task to try to corroborate this Darius with some other known figure. We're are trusting and firmly standing in that the Bible demonstrates what is right, Amen. and it will prove to be right. Amen. Amen. Whoever Darius is, he is obviously made ruler of Babylon by somebody. Yeah. He's a subordinate of Cyrus. He is a Mede by descent and not a Persian. Like the controversy surrounding Belshazzar, archaeology will undoubtedly catch up to the inspired word of God. Amen. No doubt in the future, We'll have plenty of ammunition to lambast the scholarship of our time as their various theories are proven untenable because an archaeologist will dig up a reference to what Daniel clearly has already told us was the case. Darius the Mede was a subordinate to Cyrus, and that puts your frame of reference in view. It really shouldn't bother you that somebody hasn't dug up a record of Darius the Mede yet. In the very last chapter... For centuries, people denied the existence of Belshazzar until we found inscriptions with his name on it. This will be like all of the others. We need to avoid the temptation to shove square pegs into round holes. That ruins people's theology. It has certainly ruined their eschatology. Perhaps we could just show a little more faith in the actual written word. One last 
uh, item of serious importance as we prepare to read Daniel 6 is that we must remember that Daniel is thematically arranged and is not in chronological order. The chapter we're reading tonight is virtually at the end of Daniel's chronology and his life. But it is intriguing to see what has already happened by way of Daniel's visions prior to the events in Daniel 6. You remember this slide? So in chapter 1, that has already happened. Chapter 2 has already happened. He's already had the dream of the statue. In chapter 3, the whole fiery furnace event has already happened. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's letters gone out to the entire world already. Chapter 7, the dream of the four beastly kingdoms has already happened. Chapter 8, the vision of the ram and the goat in their battle. It has already been given to Daniel. Chapter 5, the writing on the wall where Babylon falls to the Persians has already happened. You ready for this one? Chapter 9, Daniel's prayer and the vision of the 70 weeks has already happened. So to give you some perspective, Daniel is 83 years old or thereabouts in the chapter tonight. Okay, that's uh, without wanting to offend anyone here or listening. That's really old. (laughs) Daniel has been in office publicly for 66 years. Okay, and I'm really happy to say he doesn't suffer from the same things that President Brandon does. (laughs) Even President Brandon agrees with, let's go Brandon. Daniel has already seen the statue of the Gentile kingdoms crushed by the rock cut out of the mountain. Daniel has already seen four four beastly kingdoms give way to the kingdom of God. Daniel has already seen the ram and the goats battle. He's seen the handwriting on the wall. Daniel has already seen the 70 weeks that will finish the transgression of the people of God. Put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, and bring in everlasting righteousness that Daniel 9 says. That is the Daniel that we're reading about tonight. And this is one of the reasons that you're going to see him um, display extraordinary biblical faith. And that's an important context to get as we go into the scripture tonight. Why don't we do this? Let's... uh, Let's have Micaiah stand up like a man and pray out loud for our study tonight. Yes, Lord. Father, we don't want to just sit here and listen to another great teaching. 
Father, we want to go out and be transformed from this day. So, Father, open our ears. Oh, man! Hey, Jim, why don't you pick up in chapter 6 and verse 1? It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it is something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and, and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The Lord, royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be altered, in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Amen. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the dead, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, 
O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Come on. All right. So the typical question when approaching Daniel 6 is, can we learn anything from Daniel 6? This is the chapter that many of us have grown up with and probably the most known story in the Bible all the way from childhood. Well, your, answer, your question is going to be answered tonight. So we encourage you, stay alive. Stay vibrant, ready to hear what God has for you tonight. You guys ready to dig in? Yes! Linton, let's start in verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them, so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps, by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. All right, so we have a slide for you to demonstrate what the structure of the Medo-Persian government looked like. So as we've already noted, we have Cyrus the Persian on top. The buck stops with him. Then under him, we have Darius the Mede. He's reigning under Cyrus. Then under Darius the Mede, we have three administrators. Daniel's one of those three administrators. So he's pretty high up in the kingdom. Big dog. Then under those three administrators, we have 120 satraps. This is the arrangement that the scripture describes of the Medo-Persian dominion over the reign of Babylon, over the area of Babylon and the city of Babylon. One of the things that is so admirable about Daniel, though, is that he cannot be placed into a position that he becomes a victim in. Amen! There's been changes in kingdoms, and he is still not victimized by these changes. Daniel represents the best of Israel. He represents the best of the Jews that Adonai has always been in the creation of. Adonai's looking for a certain type of Israel, and Daniel's representing it here. Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah are men who cling to the law of God and rise to his purposes in any and every situation. These are the good figs. These are the ones that cling to the promises of God despite their circumstances. This story permeates the Bible in Jewish figures like Joseph, in figures like Esther, in figures like even David, and even 
the Messiah himself, Yeshua, where the rise of faithful Jews in the midst of judgment and difficulty is the predominant theme. Let's read a few to give you an idea. This is Genesis 41, 41 through 45. Verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. How mm. <laughs> He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath Paneah, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. So we're in the Torah here for our first scripture. And Joseph is the subject matter. Joseph is a good fig. You see, he was abused in Egypt. Yet everything that he did, it seemed to prosper. Amen. Everything at his hand. This is directly linked to the way that Joseph honored the God of Israel. Come on. The way that Joseph kept the law of his God. Amen. Despite every difficulty and attack, the enemy just could not keep him from rising to power. That was God's will for his life, and nothing could stop that from happening, and Joseph could not have a bad attitude about that. These stories are, of course, foreshadowing Messiah, the messianic figure, but they are also the story of the nation of Israel as a whole. Come on. What, you guys believe me? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you're going to see it again. This is 2 Samuel... Chapter 7, starting in verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. (coughs) The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Now in the Nevi'im, David is rejected and abused by brothers and Gentiles, but everything that he does prospers. This is directly linked to the way that David honors the God of Israel as a Jewish man. Now, despite every difficulty and attack, the enemies of God could not keep David from rising to power. These stories are, of course, foreshadowing Messiah, but they are also the story of the nation of Israel. Oh, come on. We're going to pick up in Esther 8, verse 1 in the Ketuvim and see a similar occurrence. That same day... King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, (laughs) the enemy of the Jews. Uh And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, 
Yeah, he did. Dead now. And presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. <laughs> As we mentioned earlier, this is in the Ketuvim, and you're seeing the same story. Esther and Mordecai are falsely accused. They're mistreated. And they're in constant, unfair situations. But everything that they do in the end prospers. Yeah, this is directly linked to the way that Esther and Mordecai honor the God of Israel as Jewish believers. <coughs> Despite every difficulty and literal attack, the enemies of God could not keep Esther and Mordecai from rising to power. Now, as we mentioned, these stories are, of course, foreshadowing Messiah. But they are also the story of the nation of Israel. They rose with Esther and Mordecai. Yeah. We keep saying that and we're doing it repetitively because you're very used to looking at Older Testament stories and going, oh yeah, yeah, it's about Jesus! <laughs> and it is, but it's also about the nation. It's yeah. about everybody who keeps faith within the nation. Yeah. But let's get to what you want to hear. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. I've heard more ridiculous interpretations of this verse than you can imagine, and some of them have come from you. <laughs> Jesus is the Savior of the world, but first and foremost, he is a faithful Jewish man. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you fall on him in attack or he falls on you in judgment. The result is always the same. The enemies of God are crushed and broken to pieces, just as Daniel 2 said would happen to all kingdoms that are not derived from the power of God. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is Messiah. And we all agree to that. But you must never forget that he is the king of Israel and will accomplish the destiny of his people and nation, which is to inherit the kingdom of God on earth that supplants all Gentile kingdoms. This is echoed in the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation 12.10, which, by the way, we can probably call the book of Revelation the revelation of the Jewish Messiah and his Jewish nation. Mm, yeah. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Mashiach. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. You see, the people of God, namely Israel, have been under constant attack from earthly and spiritual powers since the day that Adonai declared, you are my chosen people. Is not that true? Yeah. Yeah. And yet, they will prosper, they have been prospering, and they will prosper and rise to power under Adonai's hand. This is and always has been in proportion to this nation's faithful obedience to the Torah. This is the destiny of Israel, and it's the destiny of all who are grafted into their destiny. Amen. You see, the nation of Israel was promised 
the kingdom of God under their Messiah. And no amount of opposition from the accuser will prevent this from happening. Amen. Come on, saints. Amen. No amount of opposition from the Gentiles will prevent this from happening. Yeah. The book of Daniel does as much as any other work to illustrate, illustrate this truth. Just look at these four Hebrew boys. It doesn't matter whether the four Hebrews are under Nebuchadnezzar, whether they are under Belshazzar, or whether they're under Darius the Mede. When Jews obey the Torah, then they rise to power because they are fulfilling the purposes of God. Amen. You see a recipe forming? The people obeying the words and commands that their God have given them. Now, we're going to go to Philippians for our final passage in this string. But as we read it, we want you to remember something. These promises were all given to Israel first. Yeah. And you, a Gentile, second, yeah. after them. Yeah. Paul admonishes Jews and Gentiles alike in Philippians to have the attitude of Christ which is foreshadowed in the Jewish figures that we have covered in this string, just like the character of Daniel. This is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, Messiah, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, does this passage stop there with Jesus being victimized by his experiences? In no! Of course it doesn't. Look at where verse 9 goes. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is, of course, about Jesus and about his exaltation. But it's also the destiny of the nation of Israel. Come on. As they walk in the footsteps of their Messiah. Come on. Everything that their Messiah experienced, they will experience as well. There is no situation that Israel can be put in that they will not rise to the Come power on. of the kingdom of God when they obey Torah. Come on. Yeah. That is the linchpin to this entire scripture string. Now, this is what Gentile believers have been adopted into. That's you and me. The attitude that we must have, that when we obey Torah, the law of God, there is no situation we can be put in that will cause us to react in any other way other than how these great Jews did throughout history. Come on. Amen. That's good. That makes up in verse 4. <laughs> At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. There it is. Wow. So Israel is a genetic family and that's important. But to be the true Israel... The law must make you distinct in your behavior. Come on. Yeah. Gentiles can be adopted into the family without the cultural identity of circumcision. But listen, 
but not without the distinctness that the Word of God brings. Come on, somebody. Come on. Now, if there's a basis for you being attacked, let it be because the law of God and not because of your conduct, your corruption, or your negligence. That's a good word. Now, just for driving this point home, I'm going to read this again. If there's a basis for you being attacked, let it be because of the law of God. Amen. And nothing else. Not because you were corrupt or negligent or a fool. Now, Daniel was special and represents the true Israel of God because his distinction was more than ethnic. His distinction was because he obeyed the law of his God. Amen. Now, let's pick up in Psalm 119 as we unpack this. Psalm 119, verse 92. If your Torah had not been my delight, I would have perished in my distress. Come on. Saints, the law of God is and always will be the only hope for deliverance. It's not in any other means, not in arms, not in political deliverance. The law of God. And if you lose the law of God, then you've lost the very purpose for living and there's no reason to fight for it. Wow. That's true. Psalm 119, verse 43, says, Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Amen. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Saints, trouble and distress are the immediate destiny for all faithful men. But the law is what gives us understanding and life. This is true first for the Jews and second for us graft-ins. Take a look at Proverbs 6, 20 through 23. My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. You know who this is? You know who's speaking here and who they're speaking to? These are Jewish fathers and mothers speaking to their Jewish children. This might as well have been Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah's fathers speaking to these men, encouraging them to remember the law. Verse 21, bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. Come on! Anybody experience the law of God speaking to them? For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life. You see, the primary lesson that we learn from the Jewish people, like Daniel, like Hananiah, like Azariah and Mishael, is that the law itself is the way to life, even in persecuting situations. It gives you life and helps you to stand. Listen to Romans 15, 3 through 4. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Let me help you with that. Jesus speaking. The insults of those who insult you, Father, have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So listen to this. When the law of God causes trouble and hardship for you, then people are actually treating you as they would treat God if they could. 
Just like the testimony of Jesus. Your insults are falling on me in this life. That's how they're treating Jesus, so that's how they would treat the Father. If this is your only real vulnerability, though, having the law of God and obeying it and adhering to it, if that's your only vulnerability like it was Daniel's, then you can be absolutely confident that you are going to have divine intervention. Amen. Amen. Man, 120 rivals, man. 120 of them could find no fault in Daniel. So the next time you're asked if you're a Christian, maybe you should have a different answer than your traditional one. Maybe your answer should be something like, hey, that's a better question for you to answer about me. Because the answer is based on the behavior that you see demonstrated in my actions. Hey man, you tell me if I'm a Christian by how I'm acting and if I'm adhering to the law of my God or not. Come on. Now, the Apostle Peter addresses situations like the one we're seeing in Daniel 6. Listen to 1 Peter 4, picking up in verse 12. This is a good word. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, mm. as though something strange were happening to you. Whoa. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Hallelujah! So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Yeah. (laughs) With all their meddling. (laughs) However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Amen. Now it's clear that Peter understood the principles that we're laying before you. And they are beautiful, aren't they? Yes. We can be thankful for him as an older Jewish brother teaching us how to inherit the destiny of Israel, which is the kingdom of God on earth. Amen. While you think about that, Brother Linton, I think it's best that we pick up in verse 6 and 7 together. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. Mm -hmm. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. I'm sorry, Lenten. They said they all agreed? That was the wrong kind of unity. Okay, keep going. What did they agree on? That the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Lies, lies, lies. This is a bit of lies about as bad as our media campaign. You remember the authority structure in Medo-Persia? We had Cyrus, then we had Darius, then we had three guys that are over all of these satraps, one-third of nearly the highest-ranking government. You know who didn't agree with this? Daniel. Daniel. We've all agreed, except for one-third that is supposed to be in charge of decisions like this. And I love the inerrancy of scripture. It can declare truth while exposing man's false satanic lies and show them for what they are. What these men said is clearly being deceptive with the king. They're working to set him up for failure by presenting a unity that is not real unity. Now Daniel, Daniel's going to be just fine. But imagine if they had gotten their two or three witnesses right prior to presenting this. Why don't you go ahead and pick up in verse 8 and 9. Now, O king, 
issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Look, a pit dug for the faithful ends up being a trap for those who dug it. No, that's true. That's another repeating theme through the Bible. Proverbs 26, 26 speaks to this. Their malice may be concealed by deception. They forever, O king. But their wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. The only real refuge that a man has is to be living in faithful obedience to the law of God. When this is your position, then a pit dug for you ends up being a trap for your adversary. These men have concealed their own motives from the king. But in the end, they will fall into the very pit dug for Daniel. I just want to point out to you that leveraging the king, it usually has consequences. (laughs) This is true of earthly kings. How much more is it true of the eternal king? Church, we need to be careful of our motives when we go before the true king. And even more careful in our use of his word, especially with one another. The word is not a tool to leverage your own desired outcome. The word is a sword meant to pierce your own heart so that it can drive out the dung within. If you don't understand that reference, read Hebrews 4 and then go read about Ehud and Eglon in the book of Judges. Take a look at Proverbs 24, 21. Fear the Lord and the King, my son, and do not join with rebellious officials. For those two will send sudden destruction on them. And who knows what calamities they can bring. Look, it's offensive to ignore the king's word. It's offensive to ignore God's word. But the only thing that may be more offensive than ignoring the king's word is the misuse of his word. To take the king's word and make it say something that it did not say, or use it for your own motives or your own wants, or even your own needs at times. That is the most offensive thing to the king of kings. And if you do that, you're going to get eaten by a lion. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's literally true in Daniel 6, and it's a metaphor in your life. I, I want you to be wary, charismatic Christian, of using God's word as a lever to try to justify what you want. The times that I have watched people do that consistently over time, their lives were eaten by lions. By the way, the Aramaic expression, not, yeah, Aramaic expression for slander is to be eaten in pieces. That's, uh, that's, that's the phrase that is used to describe slander. Little chunks. Let us keep going, though. Listen to Proverbs 22, verse 11. One who loves a pure heart and who speaks with grace will have the king for a friend. Come on. How do we purify our hearts? Well, you have to purify your heart with the word of God. And at that point, you 
can have a purified heart that speaks with grace. And what does this produce? It causes friendship with the king. Now, on a practical and historical note regarding the laws of the Medes and Persians that cannot be repealed, a king's authority is diminished when he has to change his mind. The king issues a degree, and then tomorrow he says, oh, yeah, well, take, take a modern-day example. Like, our government says, we're going to handle COVID in these three ways. And then less than a year later... They come out and say, you know what? We have no idea what we're doing, and we're not sure how we're going to handle it. So were you wrong the first time, or are you wrong this time? Or do you have the distinction yes. of being wrong both times? You know, that kind of diminishes your authority in our eyes when you come and contradict yourself like that so often. To change a written law means that the king got it wrong the first time. Or... He's getting it wrong the second time. One of the two, one of them has to be wrong, right? Our God never has to repeal a law, though. Amen. He sees the end from the beginning, and he calls it out with 100% accuracy. Amen. So in reading Psalm 2, what has been written will not be repealed. Come on. We must learn to make the right decision and not repeal it during inclement circumstances. This is Psalm 2, and we're going to catch verses 1 through 12. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven, he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger. And terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Amen. The ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you will be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Adonai has written the decree that a Jewish king will rule the world. Conspiring Gentile kings cannot change his mind and cannot prevent this from happening. It has been written, and it will not and cannot be repealed. Come on. Now, Daniel serves as an excellent example of a faithful Jew that no amount of conspiracy can stop him Amen. from rising to a position of Come power. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. Now, as we move on to Psalm 4, Psalm 4 is an excellent exhortation. To you as a believer to make right decisions and stand on them so that they're not repealed in your actions during the coming difficulties. Now the living and active scripture has a way of increasing in its meaning, increasing in its impact as the years go by. So don't let familiarity prevent you from interacting with this in a way that might preserve your life in the coming months. Amen. If you were as familiar with it as you think you are, we wouldn't be reading it again. <laughs> Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. 
Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Yeah. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? And if we stopped right there, it would be a painting of the days that we live in. But notice what happens. After right sacrifices, the world is asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in shalom. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Church, we will learn to make right sacrifices again and again. We will learn to displace fear and be filled with shalom even when we are facing lion's dens that are ahead of us. Let's pick up in Proverbs 4.25. Let your eyes look directly forward. That's good advice. And your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Church, vacillating believers are not believers at all. We will press into maturity displayed in the life of a faithful Jew named Daniel by knowing what our God requires of us in the moment and never renegotiating it. Let's pick up in verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that a decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Do you notice that Daniel's immediate reaction is to go before the Lord in prayer? Yeah. Notice that Daniel's windows were already facing intentionally towards Jerusalem. He's the third highest ranking guy in the land. He can pick whatever home he wants, and he picked that one. You know what's amazing about that? At this time, Jerusalem is a pile of rubble. It's already destroyed. Let's review why these things are true of Daniel and why they were set as his convictions prior to the emergence of this particular difficulty. His convictions were set... Before the difficulty arose. Come on now. Walk us through it, Justin. So in 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30, we're going to see a little bit of why Daniel's convictions were set and what those convictions were. Verse 27. This is Solomon's prayer, by the way. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer. Your servant is praying in your presence this day. Listen to what his prayer is. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day. This place of which you said, my name shall be there. So that you will hear the prayer of your servant. Praise toward this place. Yeah. Wait, praise what? 
The prayer starts with the question, will God really dwell on earth? And the answer is yes, and prayer was to be directed towards the one geographical place on earth that God's name dwelt. Not towards the heavens, towards the physical spot on the earth. Saints, tell me that you understood that. (laughs) You may now. Listen as Solomon continues in verse 30. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. You see, Daniel is taking the word of God seriously at this point. He knows what the word says and he has based a conviction on it and it was set prior to the trial. And he literally prays, Toward the place that God said he would dwell. Solomon instructed prayer towards this physical geographical location on the earth that God's name dwelt. That's incredible, isn't it? When you survey this chapter, this language is used at least six times in 1 Kings 8. Take a look at the language in verse 48. Same chapter. 1 Kings chapter 8. You ready to build on this concept a little bit? This is going to get really, really good. And if they turn back to you. Amen. With all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name. This is exactly what Daniel was doing. This is Solomon before Daniel speaking and interceding for these things. The nation of Israel was instructed to pray toward the land, toward the city, toward the temple that God's name dwelt in. Daniel exercised believing faith. He had faith in the realities that the word of God has declared to him. Guys, At this moment, in Daniel, the land was in occupation. The city was destroyed. The temple was a pile of rubble on the ground. None of those circumstances, though, affected Daniel's trust in the realities described in the Word of God. Come on, Christian. Now might be a good time for you, Christian, to revisit what faith actually is. And what Daniel displayed in abundance. You ready for a slide? This is a good word, Pastor. This is Hebrews 11, verse 1 in the Amplified. Now you're going to want to follow along with the highlighted sections here. Now faith is the assurance, the hypostasis, the confirmation, the title deed of things we hope for. Being the proof, electros, of things, pragma, we do not see in the conviction of their reality. Yeah. Faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. Yeah. Wow. Now, when Christians talk about faith, they talk about what they believe. But Jews tend to talk about what they do, yeah. Yeah. what their actions prove. Daniel did not give extended dissertations on what he believed. Instead, <laughs> Daniel displayed biblical faith in his deeds. Amen. 
So notice the three highlighted words on the screen because they're going to be key in grasping something that alludes to the majority of believers in their practice. The first one in yellow up here is hypostasis. You can see on our next slide here. The first definition has to do with confidence, assurance, or a guarantee. The second one does. has to do with a quality that leads one to stand, to endure, to undertake something. But the third in yellow is what we really want to center on. What really exists. Say that with me. What, what really, really exists. exists. Under any appearance. Come on. Yeah. It's the reality of what exists under any appearance. Wow. Look, we're going to plug this definition back into Hebrews 11, verse 1. <laughs> and we're going to build a slightly larger amplified version. You ready? Yeah. Now faith is the assurance of what really exists under any appearance. Yes. The confirmation, the title deed of the things we hope for, being the proof of the things we do not see, and the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. Daniel was staring at an occupied land, a destroyed city, and a demolished temple. But he had the assurance of the word of God that the land was Israel's. It belonged to them. That the city would one day be rebuilt and that the temple would rise again. Saints, faith must be completely assured of the reality that God declares despite the appearance of your present circumstances. Now, parents in this room, if you react negatively Every time you believe your child has been corrected, mistreated, or disciplined unfairly, it's because there's not enough hypostasis in your faith. Mm. You may not be standing in faith at all if you can't see beyond the appearance of things. Since faith requires for you to be assured of the reality that God has declared despite your circumstances, let's all take heart and begin to show some Faith Amen. beyond the appearances. Amen. Hypostasis is a compound word. And hupo literally means under, and stasis literally means the state of. The believer must be able to look at the circumstances as they present themselves and see the spiritual reality that God will bring about that is just beneath the surface. So if you wig out every time you think your little kid was treated wrong, by somebody that you know good and well, loves the Lord, loves you, and loves your kid, how can you have any faith at all? What this reveals is that you are driven by your sight, your senses, and your feelings, and not by the heavenly reality that has been made real in your heart. But when you can look at destruction all around you, and know for sure what God will bring about. This is the beginning of biblical faith. In church, we have to rise to it as days get darker. The second word that is important in this phrase is elegchos. For time's sake, I just want to emphasize the part that is highlighted. Elegchos refers to the manifestation of the truth that a charge has been made and the results will be reaped. When you plug this second definition into your understanding, here's what it would sound like. Now faith, 
is the assurance of what really exists under any appearance. I'm talking about the confirmation and the title deed of the things we hope for being the proof or the elegios, the manifestation of the truth that the charge and the results will be reaped of things we do not presently see. We have a conviction of the reality. If you are a single in this room, you must start to gain assurance of what really exists under any appearance. You must possess a manifestation of truth of your claim and the results that you know you will reap. That is why we teach that God is a long-range archer. And if he really set the target for you, then it doesn't matter what the circumstances Amen. look like. So when you, single person, become angry that something has not worked out for you the way you thought it would, when you see the guy that you liked married to someone else, how can you be standing in a manifestation of truth that the charge God gave you will, in fact, happen? You have to come to grips with the fact that you were not in biblical faith in the first place. You were trying to manipulate God's word to fit your thoughts and feelings, and it's damaging to the whole body of Christ. Daniel is not manipulating. He's not being motivated by anger or lust. He's not being motivated by whispering and muttering to others that are just as faithless as you are looking for a consensus. Daniel has an assurance of the reality that God has declared. And he is going to see it manifested in his heart because the truth is he has already reaped it. He knows it's sincere. He knows it's real. He already has the evidence from heaven of what will happen despite what he sees. That is biblical faith. Amen. Perhaps we should look at the third word. The third word is probably the most important. It's pragma. It's to do. It's to perform. It's a thing done or to be done. Pragma is deeds. It is the things being done or needs to be done. So faith is not about going to heaven. This is the biblical definition of faith. And faith is not about going to heaven. Faith is knowing exactly how heaven wants you to act in any given circumstance. <laughs> it's not faith in a thing. It's faith in an action that you now know you must take. Come on. Look, when you plug this word into the verse, it sounds like this. This is Hebrews 11.1 1, amplified even more. Even more. <laughs> Now, faith is the assurance of what really exists under any appearance. The confirmation, the title deed of the things we hope for being the proof, the manifestation of the truth, of the charge and the results of what will be reaped, of things, the deeds that must be done, even though we do not see and the conviction of their reality, faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the, to the census. Yeah. So listen, Daniel knew exactly what must be done because he had the assurance of what really exists underneath the present appearance. This was not useless. It caused him to do something. It caused deeds to form in him. This truth manifested in Daniel as the results that must be reaped. He knew what the results were in advance. 
Daniel knew from God the deeds that must be done in spite of the circumstances he faced. Come on. Based off of what he could see underneath, based off of the manifestation of the charge God gave and what must be reaped in the future, it caused deeds that must be done. Hallelujah. This is the faith of true Israel. This is the faith that it's always been of true Israel. Look at Abraham. He believed. He acted. And God credited to him righteousness. It is the faith that you must possess, church, to establish the kingdom of God on earth. You must be able to see what's underneath your present circumstance. You must have these things, firm realities in your heart, charged to you. And you must have the deeds to accompany it. Because otherwise, it's not biblical faith. This is the faith that we must possess to establish the kingdom of God on earth or even enter the kingdom. You can't start without this faith. Come on, church, did you learn something about faith? Your answer about somebody asking you what is faith, does it look a little bit different after going through that word study tonight? The truth is, is that faith is not and cannot ever be a one-time act. In fact... It is an action that cannot be neglected even one time. Faith is a series of faith-filled actions that display what you trust in. See, Daniel prayed in faith three times every single day. And he faced Jerusalem. He faced the temple. He faced the land. He faced the land and he was praying in that faith. Why do you think he did this? Well... The word of God is going to help us because it declares why to us. Psalm 55, verse 17. Evening, morning, and noon. Somebody say all day long. All day long. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Come on. The Bible instructed the Jewish nation to pray toward the land, the city, and the temple and to do so three times a day. So we're going to go reread Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10, and we're going to come back to this point and expound greatly on it. I'll give you a hint. These notes are not going to be found in your life application Bible. So you might want to pay attention here. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, three, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Giving thanks to his God. Notice that Daniel is not doing this when there was a problem. The passage says, just as he had done before. Right. This was a practice, something that defined Daniel that he could not be turned from. Now, the Jewish nation demonstrably prayed three times a day in the first century. Daniel demonstrably prayed three times a day in the 6th century B.C. David instructed the Jewish nation to pray three times a day in the 10th or 11th century. He bridged the gap there. Some people even believe that Abraham established the morning prayer, Isaac the afternoon prayer, and Jacob the evening prayer. Whatever your beliefs are on the subject, Jewish literature gives us the names and contents of these prayers and these prayer times, and it's verifiable in early Judaism. We have a see on this next slide. Acts 3 is in reference, and this is from the Jewish New Testament commentary. 
According to one Talmudic source, which is cited there, three <laughs> prayer services were instituted after the fall of the first temple to replace sacrifices. See Daniel 6, 11, for a comparable custom during the Babylonian exile. The three services are called Shaharit, which is the morning prayer. Then Mencha, which is the afternoon prayer. This word specifically means a gift or an offering unto God. And then the Maharif, which is the evening prayer. While the Talmud instructs Jews after the fall of the temple to do this, the Bible clearly commanded the Jewish nation to do this 11 centuries prior. The Talmud is reported to be a written collection of pre-existing traditions. So a written collection of traditions that have been gathered over time, pre-existing to it. The fact that Daniel was praying three times a day in this manner is a matter of scriptural record. You just read it. If the Talmud is correct, then we may have insight into the contents of the prayer that he was praying at that time. Would you like to know what Daniel was praying? Yes. yes. Say, oh, no, no, the Talmud just says that, and that was after the first century. No, friends, the Bible has been teaching it since the 11th century B.C. The Talmud just recorded an earlier oral tradition. Again, in a commentary on Acts 3.13, David Stern writes for us, The God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the God of our fathers. This phrase is not accidental in Kepha's sermon, Peter's sermon. Its two parts are found in the first paragraph of the Amada, the central section of the Mincha prayer service, which begins, Praise be you, Adonai, our God and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, and which his hearers would just then have been reciting in the Mincha prayer. In minions throughout the temple grounds, much is done today at the western wall in the old city of Jerusalem. If you'd like a more robust survey of the Amidah, perhaps you should watch the 2009 sermon titled, The Amidah. I've been teaching about this for a long time before it was popular. For now, we would like to suggest that the Lord's Prayer can be viewed as a condensed version of the Amadah, and that it is entirely plausible that Daniel was praying the Amadah in Daniel 6.10. We want to give you a few highlights from the prayer to showcase the national heritage of Israel and the faith of Daniel. Are you ready for this? Yes. The Amadah begins with Psalm 51. Here is an excerpt from Psalm 51, verses 15 through 19. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, Come on. a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Look at verse 18. May it please you... To prosper Zion. To build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and the burnt offerings offered whole. (coughs) Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What a moving concept this is. 
since Daniel was facing Jerusalem while the temple was in rubble and declaring that God would prosper Jerusalem and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Did he pray in faith? Come on. Did he have a grasp of the underlying reality? Did Daniel possess a manifestation of the truth and its realities as something that he must do in his actions? The answer is, of course, yes. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah bear out the fruit of this claim about Daniel's prayer. The prayer continues. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, and God of our ancestors, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, the great, mighty, and revered God, the Most High God, who graciously gives loving kindness. You create all things. You remember the faithful actions of the patriarchs and in love will bring a redeemer for their children's children for your namesake. O King, helper, savior, and shield, blessed are you, O Lord, the protector of Abraham and his seed. If this was Daniel's prayer, then he certainly demonstrated with his actions that he believed Adonai was the protector of Abraham's seed and the sender of the coming Redeemer. The prayer continues. You, are Lord, are all-powerful forever. You resurrect the dead. You are mighty to save. You sustain the living with loving kindness. Resurrect the dead with great mercy. Support the falling. Heal the sick. Release the prisoners and uphold your faithfulness to them that sleep in the dust. Where have you heard that before? Who is like you, Lord of mighty acts? And who resembles you, O King, who orders death and restores life and causes salvation to come forth? And you are faithful to resurrect the dead. Blessed are you, O Lord, who resurrects the dead. Now, if this was Daniel's prayer then he clearly demonstrated that Adonai held the power of life and death. He demonstrated by going against the decree. He certainly demonstrated faith in the resurrection of the dead because he knew he could die. There is not a hint of Daniel's resistance to being thrown in the lion's den. Perhaps he reasoned in his heart that his God was able to raise the dead and therefore had no fear Because of his real and genuine biblical faith. Is that not faith? Is that not the faith that we want to rise to? Then we must not look at present circumstances to determine what your reality is. We look to the word of God. It tells us how to think. It tells us how to feel. It tells us how we must act. Amen. We will sanctify your name in the world even as they sanctified in the heavens, as it is written by the hand of your prophet. And they called one unto the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Those over against them say, Blessed, blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. And in your holy words it is written, saying, The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, unto all generations. Praise you the Lord. 
Unto all generations we will proclaim your greatness, and to all eternity we will tell of your holiness. Your praise, O our God, shall not cease from our mouth forever, for you are a great and holy God and King. Blessed are you, O Lord, the Holy God. You are holy, and your name is holy, and the holy ones praise you every day. Blessed are you, O Lord, the Holy God. Now, if this was Daniel's prayer, then he certainly sanctified the name of God in his actions. Remember that the result of this chapter is that King Darius was so moved that he sent a letter to the whole world because of the faith of Daniel in the God of Israel. Now, if you would like to study the Amidah more, a little bit more thoroughly, consider a book named Meet the Rabbis by Brad Young. That's a side note. But one of the things that you will discover, if you go and dig into it a little bit, is that the prayer goes on to these benedictions. We wanted to highlight the 10th through the 15th benediction to you. The 10th benediction, it has 19 benedictions total. The 10th is a request to gather exiles to a homeland. Come on, man. Well, isn't that interesting if Daniel's praying this? The 11th benediction is a request for the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. Come on, man. Wow, Daniel already went through Daniel chapter 9. This is very interesting. The 12th benediction is a request for protection from enemies. Wow. Well, that's pertinent in the enemy territory, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The 14th benediction is a request for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. How about that? And the 15th benediction is an expression of confidence or faith that the righteous branch or the netzer will indeed appear in Israel. Goodness gracious. So perhaps you're thinking this is a neat Jewish thing. (laughs) That it's just old school and not relevant. But take a look (laughs) at the next slide from the Didache. Now, the Didache... And how's that pronunciation, Pastor? Didache. Didache. There we go. The Didache is an early Hebrew Christian community writing uh, that's outlining the rules for community life. The dates fixed upon by scholars for the composition of the Didache fall somewhere between 50 and 160 A.D. Now, we have a slide for you from Didache 8. And let not your fastings be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week. But do ye keep your fast on the fourth and on the preparation, the sixth day? Neither pray ye as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel. Thus pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so also on earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Three times a day pray ye so. By the way, this document exists before the Talmud. Wow. This is how Christians... In the few years right after Jesus' death and resurrection, prayed. Just like Daniel prayed before the Talmud. 
Just like David prayed three times a day before the Talmud, just like his son Solomon instructed us to pray. Towards a physical location three times a day on the earth that was promised to one nation, one people group, and you have become partakers in that promise if you maintain the kind of faith that that nation displays. Come on, Is this something to rise to, people of God? Yes. So I think it's time that we gain the title deed to what must be done before it is a tangible reality. We need to possess the faith to see it. You will never accomplish through complaint what you could accomplish through faithful prayer. My God, Pastor, say that again. You will never accomplish through complaint what you could accomplish through faithful prayer. Now, if you found yourself angry with members of this community over your perceived circumstances, it is most likely because you do not possess faith in that area. I'm just going to get out there and say it's not most likely, it's a certainty. (laughs) And we suggest that Daniel is showing you the way to true biblical faith. Come on. Brother Linton, I think it's best we pick up in verse 11 together. Yeah, we're going to have to. (laughs) Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Look, just as a small note that has great ramifications, how are you found in your hour of trial? Yeah, it's all right, but you don't answer that one. When you think about your state, were you praying about the Netzer? About the great resurrection of God? How are you found? Saints, it is our highest goal that you be found in hours of trial that are coming upon you in genuine expressions of biblical faith like Daniel. Why don't we go ahead and get verse 12, Linton. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god except any god or man except you, O king, should be thrown into the lion's den? Mm. The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians which cannot be revealed. You heard us mention earlier about a meddler, about men who tried to deceive the king. However you view Darius, the text clearly says the Medes and the Persians, a collective association that have laws. Are you catching this language? This is a kingdom that is represented by a lopsided bear, a conglomerate. And the view that we have expressed is biblically sound regarding Darius. Go ahead and pick up in verse 13. Then then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. Okay, I want to jump in on this. Daniel is in his 80s, and he's still identified with the exiles from Judah. (laughs) He's held public office for 66 years, and he still identifies with the exiles from Judah. No amount of pressure could get him to lose his Jewish identity as derived from obedience to the law. The opening chapter of this book is about giving them different names to try to change their identity, (laughs) and it could not be done. When real biblical faith is possessed, when you have the reality that underlies everything born inside of your heart and you have the evidentiary finding of what will happen, you don't have to reinvent yourself every few years. You don't have to imitate every person you see that you admire. You know who you are 
in the kingdom. And that identity remains as firm as your faith. I love America. I love American Christians. I'm giving my life to it. But I've never met a more insecure group of people. I'm sure God has said it and we're going to do it. But it rains, so now we're not going to. If the reality of heaven is born in your heart, then what the hell difference does it make that it's raining outside? This is where God told me to stand, but now it's become difficult. Now pastor doesn't think it's good. Now my brother criticizes. What difference does it make? If you stand on point A and God has told you to go to point B, what difference does the distance or the difficulty make? What we're dealing with is how little of our faith is actually biblical. And so we gather around the very few that you can find that have some character. God is calling this house to develop genuine biblical character as derived from faith, hearing from God. And then we will not have squabbles over, I can't believe you said that to my son. If he's a man of God, then nothing on this earth will conquer what God has said will happen. I can't believe that y'all encourage that relationship. Okay, I can't believe you were deceived into believing there was an alternative. Church, when God has spoken to you, you do not need the assurance of circumstances. This church would not exist if we did not have character and biblical faith, and it's time you rise to that challenge. This is a good lesson. For believers living in a nation that is destined for decline and judgment. We should all learn from our older Jewish brother about the unyielding, uncompromising, undying biblical faith that every real believer must possess. Joseph, Daniel, Esther, Jesus, David, no amount of opposition could keep from happening what God said would happen and yet we become convinced that because the government shifted or because a pastor didn't do what you thought or a brother didn't support your point of view that it will keep God from doing what he said he would do? The only thing that will keep God from doing what he said he would do is you. And when that is born in your heart you are beginning to understand what it means to actually have faith. And I want the real thing. Why don't we pick up in verse 14 before y'all all all run out of the room. (laughs) When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Man, this speaks volumes to the character of Daniel. Look, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but if you're having uh, boss problems at work, you know, like he just doesn't like me. He can't see anything in me. He probably doesn't like the fact that you don't show up to work on time. It probably has nothing to do with your faith. <laughs> Take a look at Daniel here. He had actual Hebrews 11 faith that caused actions to come forth from him. And those actions actually changed his character. And this king, this Gentile king, could see it. If you allow faith to rise up in you, your character will change too along with it. And it will be evident to even the lost around you. This Gentile king made every effort through back-channel diplomacy, probably consulting his lawyers, to to get himself out of the situation he created. But he knew Daniel's character because of Daniel's faith. Let's move on to verse 15. 
Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issued can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. More testimony about Daniel's character. May your God, whom you serve continually. How often? Continually. This testimony is powerful, church. The king said, continually serve. He noticed it wasn't just half of the time, a quarter of the time. Continually serve. Daniel could not be put in a position that he was not in the service of Yahweh. He could not do it. How convicting is that thought to a people that tend to view our service to God as occurring in just specific places? You know, our, our service to God is quarantined to a certain place, like this church. Specific places for specific seasons and at specific times. No, the biblical faith is a continual service, not part-time devotion. It cannot be stopped if you have the faith of Daniel. These areas are tested precisely when things don't seem to be going as you expected them. You know, oh, it's not me, I'm just sick. No, your health is a crutch for you. If you're continually in service to God, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. We also see that Darius wants to go back on his word here. Do y'all see that, how much Darius regrets the position he's in? He wants to go back on his word. But you know who won't go back on his word? Daniel. Let's ask a question. Which man are you tonight? Are you Darius or Daniel? Do you go back on your word when it hurts? Or do you keep your word and the word of God? Hey, let's move on to verse 17. (laughs) A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. He skipped Netflix. Things were bad. So King Darius spent the night without eating, without any entertainment, whatever that means, and he could not sleep. His personal distress is quite obvious, isn't it? Yes. You know, I kind of think something. I think that Daniel probably had a better night of sleep than the king did. (laughs) And he was in the tent of lions. But this is always the fruit of sincere biblical faith. Come on, man. You can lay your head down yeah. at night knowing oh, that you're safe and secure. That's yes. what the Psalms teach us. How much actual faith can we possess if it is mixed with overwhelming anxiety and even lashing out at others? Probably not very much, right? Look, there's an interesting parallel that we wanted to draw with you with the ceiling of the pit. And the garden tomb of Jesus. Listen yeah. to Matthew 27. I'm going to read 58 through 60. And then I'm going to read 62 through 66. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. How about that? Now verse 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. 
So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. So both of these events, Jesus and the tomb in Matthew 27 and also Daniel in this chapter, are marked by a stone and a seal being placed over the tomb to prevent outside tampering with what was going on inside. But guess what happened to both of these faithful Jewish men? In both cases, the same power of God rescued these Jewish men from what was thought to be certain death, but it was not. Let's jump in on this biblical faith for a minute. How much opposition did you receive? Oh man, they rolled a rock in my way. Okay. (laughs) They sealed it. They put a seal on it. There's nothing in all of this world that can keep the resurrecting power of God from causing you to rise if you're obedient to what he told you to do. Amen. That wasn't just true for Daniel, a Jewish man. It was true for Jesus, a Jewish man. If you're in the faith of Israel, then it is true for you as well. Nobody can get in the way of what God will do in you if you obey what he has said you must do. That is biblical faith. Walking around believing that your life is the way that it is and your circumstances are the way that it is because somebody else rolled a rock in your way, put a seal on it, got all of their friends to put a seal on it, is not faithful Christianity. Faithful Christianity says bring on the opposition, dig the pits. It will not matter. They'll just be a trap for you. My God will be faithful if I am faithful to his word. It doesn't matter if it's a rock rolled over a tomb, if it's flames, if it's lions in a den, if it's Romans or any other people group. When the law is upheld, Jews are the hand of God on earth and cannot be prevented from God's service by any Gentile opposition. Come on. That's true of you too. Yeah. We're grafted into this thing. And there cannot be anything that prevents us from our faithfulness to God's service to the very end. Now pay attention as Peyton moves on here. We, I, I may have hurt your feelings. I'm trying to. But if you're listening, there is also incredible encouragement. In yes. I know what it is to have my parents roll rocks in my ways. My pastor to try to put a seal over it. For everybody in this town to try to prevent a church from being. I know what it is to experience the defection of brothers. But do you know what I also know is true? Nothing in all of this world will prevent God's destiny from happening in our lives if we're obedient to what he has said. So I'm relatively unmoved by it. I sleep as well as Daniel did that night. While (laughs) others that are faithless, well... They act like Darius did. I do not want to go back on my word. You cannot get me to go back on my word. What makes yours so volatile in volatile circumstances? It's a lack of true biblical faith. The problem is not anyone else. The problem resides in us. If the word will pierce your heart, then God will deposit 
his trusting obedience in it. You don't have a problem in the world that is derived from another member of this church, a leader in this church, or even the loss surrounding us. The only problem we have is how much confidence we have in what God has actually said. Come on. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, wow. been able to rescue you from the lions? I love that it says, the God that you serve continually. These people knew what Daniel was all about. Notice the descriptors of Darius. No sleep, distress, anguished voice. He got up at the first light of dawn. He was in a hurry. He rushed to the den. Clearly, Daniel's lifetime of faith had moved the heart of Darius. It had moved him to be distressed about Daniel's state. Daniel has taken his stand on the law of his God, and he has done it continually. He has been found blameless in every area of his life. This is the kind of witness that we want to display to the rest of the world. Yes. We want you want possess- that? Yes. We want to possess biblical faith like Daniel. Now, those confronted with this kind of powerful witness only have two options at, at the point. At point. They can wash their hands of you like Pilate did with Jesus, or they can wring out their hands in distress and anguish like King Darius. At that point, whether your witness produces a washing or a wringing of hands, you can be confident that the testimony of your life is producing exactly what the word says that it would. In light of that, consider what Philippians 1, 27-30 says. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. There it is. Without being frightened in any way to oppose you. Come on now. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. Can you imagine why Darius might be distressed and what Daniel's faith might have produced in him? And that by God, God is the deliverer. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. There's something to be said about faithfulness over time. I think there's a deeper thing that we can tell ourselves. There's something to be said about biblical faith over time. Not just what we defined it as, but what the scripture declares what Daniel, the patriarchs, all through biblical history have laid out for us, what faith actually looks like. Given that it's 943, and even among the most zealous, there is a saturation point. We're going to pick up in verse 21 and 22, and I'm going to move at a bit of a brisk pace. But if you stay with us, I promise you there are extraordinary things by the end of this chapter. Amen. Get 21 and 22. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel... And he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O King. We're going to revisit this on several levels. But to start with, 
This event made such an impact that the writer of Hebrews included it in his letter. Hebrews 11.33 says, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions. Daniel had been an inspiration towards biblical faith in every single century since the one that we're reading about right now. The writers of the New Testament took courage from it. Thanks. this is the kind of legacy that you want to leave your children. Come yeah. on. It's not a physical inheritance. It's a legacy of faith that inspires the generations ahead. When you stand in this kind of faith, angelic intervention is the expectation. But you are completely Amen. at peace if it doesn't occur because your Amen. faith is in the resurrection. Paul echoed the same sentiment. He did it in 2 Timothy, in the 4th chapter, in the 17th verse. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Guys, are you hearing this? You know well that Paul was ready to give his life, but he was also blessed with heavenly intervention. He knew what it was like to be delivered. So that he might complete his work on earth, he was not going to go a day before it was done. Saints, this must be our attitude in the days ahead. There is one more thing that we would like to point out before we move on. Are you ready for it? They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. Notice the order of Daniel's examination of his own state. Because we've been teaching this for a few decades. He first says that he was innocent before God. And then he moves to being innocent before men. This is what 1 John says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Mm -hmm. Daniel was right with God, which meant that he was also right with Darius. That's the order. Secondly, it's illustrated in Genesis 3-4 in a negative sense. Chapter 3 and chapter 4. When there was a break in chapter 3 between God and man, in chapter 4, man is killing fellow man. If you want to examine your state, you do not do it by examining your relationships with other people. That lends towards you believing the problem is with them. You start with your own position before God and then you examine your relationship with other people. When that is done correctly, do you know what you will always come up with? My issue is I need to have biblical faith. (laughs) Let's Let's do 23. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted his God. Look, Daniel experienced what so many other faithful Jews did through history. David expressed it like this. This is Psalm 40, 1 through 4. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Man, I waited patiently for the Lord. That's incredible, right? He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. On top of the lions and not under them. This is always what happens to those with biblical faith. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. 
Look, the events that we are reading about are part of a repeating pattern through history. It happened to the Jewish nation many times and again, and to many faithful Jews who held to the law through faith. But they're also a repeating pattern in this book. Daniel 3 placed three Hebrew boys in a similar situation, and they were delivered. Daniel 4 is the letter that the Gentile king wrote to the whole world after that event. This chapter is also a reiteration of this pattern. Look, we would like to draw your attention to a few points of difference, though. You guys can probably see the similarities in Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, but we're going to talk about differences for a moment. The stories are not merely duplicates of one another. However, for important elements, distinguish them. To begin with, the first story concerns Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, with the noticeable absence of Daniel. Whereas the second concerns Daniel alone. The stories also take place in two different eras. The first in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar of the Chaldean Empire. And the second in the reign of Darius of the Persian. In the first story, the imperial edict explicitly requires the Jews to bow down to an emblem of imperial power. But the friends of Daniel refuse to do it. In the second story, people are forbidden to petition anyone other than the king. But Daniel does petition God. In the first case, civil disobedience takes place in public. In the second, it takes place in Daniel's own home. So listen to these points for a moment. Daniel 3 concerns three Hebrews, while Daniel 6 only concerns one man. And yet Adonai delivers them all. He's not a respecter of persons, but rather works towards his own goal. That is the kingdom of God. Daniel 3 is under the dominion of Babylon, but Daniel 6 is under the dominion of the Medo-Persians. Adonai is undeterred by the type of opposition, or its source for that matter. He works towards his own goal, which is his kingdom established on the earth. In Daniel 3, the requirement is that the Jews bow. In Daniel 6, the requirement is to abstain from prayer. Now, whether you're required to do something God forbids or refrain from something that Adonai requires, the point is that Adonai is the one to be obeyed. In Daniel 3, the event is in public. In Daniel 6, the trigger is in private. Whether you're in public or in private, a demonstrable life of faith in Adonai is all that matters in the end. Verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So apparently the lions are hungry now. (laughs) But Daniel was protected, and these 120 adversaries were mauled by these lions. This is a very real example of the accusers of the brothers being cast down. Yes, it is. In light of that, let's review John 8. This is John 8, starting in verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when he heard it, they, were, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, these accusers, they came with false motives. Yeah. But Jesus stepped in to set free the persecuted, to cast them down, and then admonish the woman to go on to a life of biblical faith that was to avoid sin and that would ultimately glorify God. Yeah. It's because Jesus exhibits <clears throat> the same biblical faith that G- Daniel did. Yeah. So we're going to take a brief moment to examine the biblical faith that Jesus demonstrated. John 12, 30-33 says, Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Saints, had the prince of this world been driven out at that time? No. no. John 13, which you can see below, Satan has still yet to even enter Judas, and he's going to. But Jesus is operating in the reality that descends from heaven. He understands that his father is driving out the accuser, and he declares it to be so before it is so. John 14, verse 30 through 31 says, The prince of this world is coming, and he has no hold over me. Come on. Saints, he says this before he is crucified, before his flesh is stricken, and every bit of power is removed from him. Because he has faith and understands the reality, what will rise out of that situation? John 16, 11 says, The prince of this world now stands condemned. Daniel is a prototype. Jesus is a perfect image of what it looks like to look the accusers in the face before it has happened and know that they will fall and your God's word is what will rise. Jesus faced opposition. He faced opposition with manifestations that were opposed to the truth, opposed to the living and breathing word of God and its reality. But he demonstrated what it looks like to take faithful action in the face of opposition because that's real Faith in the house of God. Yeah. See, faith is not in what Jesus believed. <laughs> faith is in what the reality is that he knew was coming on the world and the actions that he must take because of it. Wow. Yeah. That is faith. Yeah. James says it very clearly. I will show you my faith by what I do. Tell me how much great faith you have and I will know whether it's true by watching your life over time. The question is, will you know whether it's true? Okay. We are going to hear from God. When we hear from God, we're going to take our stand on that. You will show your faith by being unmoved in any circumstance that comes your way. Amen. In fact, the more opposition there is, the greater faith you get to display. Yes, that is what real biblical faith is. Let's read 25 through the end. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel prospered every day of his life because he was obedient to the word of God. 
and the actions that he took showed that. The lesson in the book of Daniel again and again and again is that circumstances don't matter. All that really matters is your faithfulness to what God has shown you. That ought to be encouraging to you. Now, we are at two hours and 11 minutes, and we had every technological problem you can have tonight. We have three different clocks going, all kind of things. Had I the time, I'd illustrate to you the hereditary priesthood that Daniel established first in the Babylonian kingdom and then in the Persian. But I don't have that time. So I'm simply going to tell you in our final few minutes that the word magi, it is a Latinized version of a Persian word that Herodotus used to describe the priesthood of the Persians. That's where we get the word magi. I would tell you that the Bible itself declares at least twice three times, that Daniel is a chief of these magi. It's a term that Jeremiah used as well. I would tell you not only that Daniel 4 says this, but also that their real gift was not in the ability to read the stars, as you hear so many people say. Their real gift was actually an interpretation of dreams. And that is borne out regularly in their writings. So what did it mean to be a Persian magi? It meant that you had a gift to interpret dreams and future events, not read the stars. That's a misnomer. Had I the time, I would tell you that the original inhabitants of Persia were not Zoroastrian followers, as you have been told. I'd even cite the Encyclopedia Britannica article to prove that to you, but I don't have the time. So instead, I want to tell you that it must have been very difficult for Persian magi in a hereditary system, a priesthood that's passed down in families, to see a Jewish man raised above all of them. But it's the destiny of the nation of Israel in the world. Had I the time, I would probably tell you that the religion of the magi has very strong similarities to the religion of the Persian Magi. I'd tell you that each had a monotheistic concept of a creator who was uh, the author of all that is good and that he is opposed by a malevolent spirit. I would tell you that they each have hereditary priesthoods but believe that man would be a mediator between the rest of mankind and God. I would tell you that each depended on the wisdom of the priesthood to know what future events would be. I would tell you that they both had a clean and unclean concept in believe that they were supposed to make decisions based on what God said was clean or unclean. I would tell you that the Persian Magi actually were a caste system within the Seleucid kingdom, within the Parthenian kingdom, and within all of the kingdoms of the region during the time because they became somewhat of a king-making class. The way that you knew that the king was ordained by your local god was that these priests said so. We had the time to go into the political background in history. I would tell you that during the time of Alexander, the Jewish nation and the Persian nation suffered from many of the same things. They both had a revolt against Alexander. The Jews had the Maccabean result and the Persians had their own revolt that 
resulted in them having uh, a real standing in the Parthian Empire. Why is that important? Because Magi is where you get the word magistrate. It is, they became governmental officials wherever they went, even though they were pagans and not Jews. There's an inscription called the Bitsuktun that I would read to you. It's very much like the Rosetta Stone, but we don't have time. Linguists around the world like it because it's in Elamite, Akkadian, which is Babylonian, and Old Persian, which is Aramaic, and it gives us the key between three languages. What they don't often tell you is that the whole story is about the revolt of the Persian Magi and the way that a king had to try to put them down because the priesthood did not support his kingship. Then I would go on to explain the relationship between the Parthenians and the Romans in the time of Christ because they were rival kingdoms. And every time that Rome tried to defeat the Parthian Empire, the Parthian Empire won and very often launched a counterattack against the Romans. Now this is particularly interesting when you consider that the guy that obtained the title king of the Jews is Herod, and he did it while he was in Rome, titled king of the Jews by Romans, and he was not even present in Jerusalem when it happened. So can you imagine after the siege that had to take place for him to come back to his own town, and be declared king of the Jews by his people, how upset he was when Parthian Magi showed up and declared that there was another king that had just been born. Listen, saints, if we had time to do it, we don't, because we're two hours and 17 minutes in it. If I read this source material to you, uh, we'll be here all night. Herod is on a slippery slope. He has a title given to him by the Romans, and that's only as good as their dominance over the Parthian Empire. And the Parthians are giving Rome a real challenge. So Herod is sitting in that situation when he sees a giant convoy coming from the east of Persian Magi, who just so happened to have been instructed by a guy named Daniel, who had received already the revelation of Daniel 9 and the restoration of Israel, received already the revelation of Daniel 2, received already the revelation of Daniel 7, and they are now saying a king has been born here. You're told from astronomers that there was some kind of convergence and maybe it was this planet and that planet. I've seen a lot of things in my life, but I've never seen a star stop at somebody's house. If it was just astronomy, then they would not have gone to Jerusalem first. They would have gone to Bethlehem first. They went to Jerusalem because that's where the existing king of the Jews was, and they wanted to make a point. No, there's another king that's been born. The influence of Daniel's life is unmeasurable. And it went on for centuries after he's dead and gone. Right up into the place where he has influenced the men that came and first declared among the Gentile peoples of the world that Jesus is Messiah. I don't know the effects of your faithfulness. I don't know what that will do. But I do know what the effects of unfaithfulness will do. You cannot measure 
what the deeds done in faithfulness during your lifetime will mean for the centuries to come. Forgive me for saying it this way, but I'm not actually sorry. You sure as hell know what will happen if you do not act in faith. All of history teaches us that. The faith that is born in this room has the ability to affect the world for decades and centuries into the future. But it requires the kind of biblical faith that can open your windows and pray looking at an occupied nation, looking at a destroyed city, and looking at a temple that is in rubble and said, I still know what my God said and I am unmoved. Throw me in the lion's den and that's okay. I don't want to be eaten by lions, but I believe that what is necessary in our time is for men to enter into this conflict willing to win or die, and if necessary, to die and win. That means that we have to grow up in our faith. Would you all stand to your feet? Saints, do you hear the clear call and command and demand for our our faith to rise to a biblical faith? Yes. Yes. The kind of faith that has the firm grasp of the underlying reality of God's kingdom so much that it's unmoved by circumstance, so much that it eviscerates emotions that do not line up with God's word nor his heart. I want to share with you a very common passage that came alive in a completely new way for me as we were studying this. And I'm hearing that demand and command for us. Yeah. It's Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare God's people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up. Here's the kicker. Until we all reach unity in the biblical faith. Until we all reach that firm, unmovable grasp of the reality of God. That takes action and thereby validates itself. I want to say to you tonight, church, it's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to mature. That is the age of which we have come to now as a church. Where it's not in speech, it is in deed that we demonstrate a biblical faith. And by doing so, all together we will reach the unity in that biblical faith and attaining the whole measure of Christ himself. Participating in God's eternal plan that we see at work in Daniel and that we've seen at work through the history of mankind. His kingdom of heaven being established here on earth. And we are called to be full participants of it. Let us not one be found short of participating in this great and high call. 
and it demands a daily rising and maturity into this biblical faith. It is what makes our calling and election sure. Come on, let's pray together. Raise your hands up to the Lord. Mighty God, we hear your call that we might elevate each and every life in this place to actual biblical faith. Lord, we are crying out, Lord, that we might all be brought to full unity in this kind of faith, Lord. That there not be one of us that is left behind, Lord, we're actually going to look at your word. We're going to base our life, our thoughts, our efforts in your word, Lord. We will be able to see beyond the circumstances and only rely on your word, being unmoved by the circumstances around us, but trusting in you, trusting in your word, and trusting in your ability to make in us exactly what you desire. Lord, thank you for men like Daniel, that we can see this Jewish man whose impact in this world was beyond our words, Lord. We want to have the same kind of faith, each and every one. Lord, move on our hearts, Lord. We are those who believe. Lord, we're asking you to help us in our unbelief. Lord, that we might reflect your true biblical faith in this house. Lord, we love you, we honor you, and we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.